You're listening to a special edition of the Global Research News Hour on CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We are also podcast at the website globalresearch.ca. On today's installment, you will hear a lecture given by Dr. Guy McPherson at the West End Cultural Centre at in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada on the subject of climate collapse and near-term human extinction. Guy McPherson is Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. He's also the author of the book Going Dark. His primary message is that not only is human-generated climate change a reality, it is too late for any human strategy to stop it. And it will inevitably lead to the complete extinction of the human species within the next two decades. Dr. McPherson is distinct from most other scientists acknowledging the climate change problem. Most articulate the view that this dire scenario can be avoided if world leaders would only take the right steps to reduce dependence on fossil fuels. McPherson, for his part, claims he is only pointing to the data available through the International Panel on Climate Change, peer-reviewed journals, and other publicly accessible documents. Guy McPherson earned undergraduate and graduate degrees focused on the extraction of natural resources. He led a respectable personal life as a tenure-track professor. Ten years into his career, he began to divert his attention to social criticism, which included a focus on the twin sides of the fossil fuel coin, global climate change and energy decline. He eventually walked away from the tenured professor position, deciding instead to channel his energy into sustainable living practices. He moved to an off-grid straw bale house and developed an organic garden and working with neighbors in his rural community. Dr. McPherson has given many lectures to public audiences across Canada and the United States and has now done multiple media interviews. He believes that runaway climate change will lead to habitat loss and that will seal the fate of humanity. The talk you are about to hear was sponsored in part by the Dharma Center of Winnipeg, who arranged to have McPherson brought to the Prairie City. Close to 100 people were present at the venue to hear McPherson's talk. The speech was recorded by CKUW on February 6, 2014. It struck me watching this four-minute video that uh, Dr. McPherson put up that uh, five or six or seven years ago when he started, uh, kind of went public with his views, he was a pretty unhappy guy. Uh, He was... uh, you know, angry and uh, uh, alarmed at the degree of denial and the degree of ignorance out there about what's actually happening on the planet. But in five years, uh, he's turned into the guy you're going to see tonight, warm-hearted, compassionate, insightful, and funny even. And it struck me that uh, although... (laughs) He didn't think he was doing it until I pointed out he's been doing it in Suba meditation these five years, seven years, contemplating the death of a planet, contemplating the death of a species or the death of many species. And just as the Buddha predicted, 
looking at what we're engaged in, understanding clearly what we're engaged in, um, leads to this uh, compassion, this willingness, this, this interest, this urge to assist other beings. It's really quite uh, moving to experience. And, and I thought that, well, let's, let's meet this guy and see what he has to say. So this is a um, presentation for serious-minded people who are willing to take a look at some hard facts. And uh, if you do, I hope you take uh, Dr. McPherson as your model and elect like to do what he's done, which is to work uh, to uh, help people deal with this in a wholesome, kind, productive way. So uh, I'll let him uh, tell you what he has to say, and I, I hope you come to the same conclusions about him and his views uh, th that I've done. So thanks for showing up. So Guy, come and take over the podium here. Thank you all for coming. Thanks especially to Jerry and John. I really can't stand still. I'm not sure when Woody Allen said this, but it looks like we didn't choose correctly. I should augment Jerry's story just a little bit. What Jerry actually told me after we had made arrangements for me to come, he told me why I invited you is my teacher had us meditate on a decomposing body. And you've been doing that for a long time, so we should talk. And the first thing that comes to my mind is he needs a volunteer. And I'm thinking Winnipeg in, in February, it's going to take me forever to decompose. But apparently he wasn't looking for that kind of volunteer. <laughs> it, it appears that we've gone down a path that leads us to human extinction in the not-too-distant future. We've had no humans on Earth at 3.5 degrees above baseline. We are headed for more than 3.5 degrees above baseline. And as a consequence, human extinction will result not because we're not lacking in cleverness or adaptability. We're stunningly clever. We're stunningly adaptive. But we're going to run out of habitat. We're animals. We're human animals. Like other animals, we need habitat. And that habitat has got to include air and water and food and those, those fundaments that we take for granted. So that's where we're headed. I'll talk a little bit about that. We've had plenty of warnings. It was 1847 when George Perkins Marsh, American naturalist and ambassador a combination you hardly ever hear of these days, concluded that the effects of burning fossil fuels will be profound with respect to the urban heat island effect and also to global climate change. This is 1847. We didn't really start burning fossil fuels. Most people don't even think that we began the Industrial Revolution until a few years after that, right? So we were just getting started at that point. Svent Arrhenius comes along a half, half a century later and predicts a one-degree temperature rise by the end within 104 years. 
and he missed it by oh so little, stunningly. He thought it would be a good thing. Svante Arrhenius went on to win the Nobel Prize in chemistry, and he thought climate change would be a good thing because he lived in a Nordic region, and he was looking forward to warmer temperatures and thought we'd be able to grow more food that way. But that aside, he predicted with stunning accuracy the consequences of burning fossil fuels on global average temperature. Frank Capra, yes, that Frank Capra, the filmmaker, when he was working for GE, produced a film called The Unchained Goddess in, in which, quote, he says, we're not only dealing with forces of a far greater variety than even the atomic physicist encounters, but with life itself. He warned about human extinction in a film he made in 1958 as a result of climate change from burning fossil fuels. The Assistant Secretary of Justice in the government of Salvador Allende in Chile in early 1973, and there's a long quote here, and I've taken the liberty of translating the translation from his native English, from his native language to English into fewer words. What he's saying here is industrial civilization is degrading, exhausting, and enslaving, and it threatens to cause human extinction. That's 1973. That was a long time ago. So we've had warnings for a long time. If you want to look at a more rooted, a more fundamentally scientific warning, the last time we had a below average temperature for any month was February 1985. Now think about it for a minute. About every other month it should be slightly below average. The probability without climate change of any month being below average is about 50%. The odds of having this many months in a row of above-average global temperature exceed the odds of plucking a single atom from the entire universe. Long odds. Robert Watson, testifying to Congress in 1986, says we can expect significant changes in climate in the next few decades leading to human extinction. Thanks to Alec Jones, the somewhat unusual character journalist, for pointing this out. I discovered this just a few months ago, um, and Alex Jones was saying, see, it didn't happen. These guys are all loony. It's been a few decades. I'm not sure how he defines a few decades. It's only been 28 years. But I don't think we're at a few decades yet, apparently, by Watson's guess. And finally, the United Nations Advisory Group on Greenhouse Gases in 1990 reports that beyond one degree C may elicit rapid, unpredictable, and nonlinear responses that could lead to extensive ecosystem damage. So one degree C is a, is a significant threshold. And we've known this for a long time, 24 years now. In fact, James Hansen, the renowned climate scientist from the United States, finally, two months ago, concluded that his political target of two degrees C has been the wrong target the whole time. One degree C is what we need to worry about. I will argue that we've already crossed the Rubicon, that one degree C is irrelevant because we've triggered the kinds of consequences predicted by the United Nations Greenhouse Group in 1990. So we're at 0.85 above baseline right now, 0.85 degrees. 
the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the renowned organization that won the Nobel Peace Prize for their work in 1987, with their, I mean, in 2007, with their fourth assessment, concludes we're headed for 1 degree C by 2100. Remember, the United Nations Advisory Group on Greenhouse Gases reports 24 years ago that beyond 1 degree C, we're in serious trouble. Hadley Center for Meteorological Research comes along about a year later and says 2C is most likely. Bear in mind as we work through these large-scale assessments done by these large reputable organizations that they, with each assessment they have more data and they have more computational power. So Moore's Law indicates we double computing power in about 18 months. And so a year between assessments is actually quite a long time with respect to both computing power and the data at hand. United Nations Environment Program comes along mid-2009, says 3.5C by 2100. Remember, we haven't had humans on a planet 3.5C warmer than baseline. Hadley Center for Meteorological Research comes along a year after the previous assessment and says 4 is the new 2 and it's coming by mid-century. This is huge. Global Carbon Project and Copenhagen Diagnosis, um, coincident with the COP15 meetings in Copenhagen, thrown under the bus by the Obama administration and their allies, concludes six or seven degrees temperature increase by 2100. United Nations Environment Program comes along years ago now, says up to 5C by 2050. A couple of things to keep in mind about these assessments which now include more recently the United States Department of Defense in their quadrennial or every four-year assessment, climate change is among the great security threats facing the United States. Something to keep in mind is none of these assessments take into account collapse of this set of living arrangements. None of them take into account any significant positive feedbacks either or self-reinforcing feedback loops. And finally, the IPCC, with their fifth assessment, which is due out this year, but which has already been heavily leaked, concludes that global warming is irreversible without massive geoengineering of the atmosphere's chemistry. So they say we've already triggered so many self-reinforcing feedback loops, none of which are accounted for in this fifth assessment, none of which were accounted for in the fourth assessment either. The major feedback loops are not accounted for. But they say we've triggered those kinds of of events, and we need to implement geoengineering. Let's think about geoengineering for a moment. Remember what they said, global warming is irreversible without massive geoengineering of the Earth's atmosphere. According to a paper in the journal literature that came out shortly thereafter, climate geoengineering cannot simply be used to undo global warming. So we need to implement geoengineering, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, they didn't indicate what kinds of geoengineering would be required or they didn't even make suggestions. But according to a journal article that came out almost immediately thereafter, geoengineering probably isn't going to work. That's bolstered by another paper to come out the same month. Geoengineering may succeed in cooling the earth, but it's also going to disrupt precipitation patterns to such an extent that, that it's, it's a monster out of the box. We, we shouldn't go there. Piling on in the refereed journal literature from just last month attempts to reverse the impacts of global warming by injecting reflective particles, which is the most commonly proposed geoengineering strategy, into the atmosphere could actually make matters worse. And finally, from page paper in Nature Climate Change, 
uh, again last month, overall public evaluation of climate engineering is negative, so people aren't interested. It almost certainly won't work, and people are not interested. It's necessary, according to the incredibly conservative IPCC, but it won't work, and we're not interested in implementing it. So it appears that, in fact, we've triggered runaway greenhouse. Clive Hamilton points out in his latest book that without the sulfates associated with industry, when, when the age of industry is done, Earth will be an extra 1.1 C warmer within three days. We're at 0.85 C right now. That takes us to the, to the political target of 2 C in a matter of days. And 2C, as we know, triggers all kinds of nasty behavior in the climate that we don't want to have anything to do with. John Davies, John Davies writing for the Arctic Methane Emergency Group last September, says, quote, the world is probably at the start of a runaway greenhouse event which will end most human life on Earth before 2040. He's taking into account none of the self-reinforcing feedback loops I'm going to talk about. He's just considering carbon dioxide in the atmosphere which currently hovers at about 400 parts per million for the first time in the human experience. Good news, none of these include collapse of the set of living arrangements. Bad news, they don't include positive feedback, self-reinforcing feedback loops either. So all of these assessments are missing much of the story. If we think about those positive feedbacks for a minute, first of all, collapse leads to 1.1C, which takes us to 2, 1.95, let's call it 2, 2C above baseline in a week. Paul Beckwith, a climate scientist at, here in Ottawa, says that we, we, we could experience a 6 degrees C increase within a decade. I can guarantee there will be no humans on a planet 6 degrees warmer than baseline. And we could be there in a decade. About a year later, he says up to a 16 C increase within a decade or two based on his evaluation of historical evidence. When we talk about rapid, unpredictable, and nonlinear responses, that's what we're looking at. Profound changes in a very short period of time. Climate change has gone well beyond linear. We cannot simply track the past and extrapolate that forward using a linear approach anymore. According to Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences paper from last October, the Earth has seen a 5C rise during a span of 13 years. 13 years, 5C rise. So back to us, conclusions are not that far outside of what we have observed in the historical record. 6C in a decade, we've triggered all these self-reinforcing feedback loops that were not in place because of human, humans burning fossil fuels 55 million years ago. According to the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the game, game theory indicates current climate negotiations won't avert catastrophe, and I've actually been writing about this for a long time. Of course they won't. There is no politically viable approach to dealing with climate change. Do you think a politician is going to come up and say, we need growth, of course, Obviously, we need growth. Growth for the sake of growth, the ideology of a cancer cell. We have to have that. That's what civilization is based on. Is some politician going to come up and say, well, instead of that, let's not do growth anymore. Let's do collapse. 
because we need to reduce carbon emissions. The only way to reduce carbon emissions is to get, get into a Great Depression. Each year since 2008, the most dire year of the global economic depression in which we're still mired, each year since then we've set a new record for CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. Every year we break the record from the year before and we're in the midst of, uh, to be polite, an economic recession at the world level. And from paper in Science last August, climate change is on track to occur 10 times faster than any time in the last 65 million years. Of course it is. And remember, 55 million years ago, we observed a 5C rise in 13 years. 10 times faster than that? That sounds like a big number to me. According to Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, the level of atmospheric carbon dioxide we observe today is the minimum level we'll see for at least the next 1,000 years. Carbon dioxide is incredibly recalcitrant in the atmosphere. We can't just wave a magic wand, start doing permaculture and powering down, and expect to reduce that number to 350 parts per million, as proposed by 350.org. It doesn't work that way. We're at 400 parts per million, roughly, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and we will be for at least the next 1,000 years. United Nations Environment Program points out that during 2008, global carbon emissions actually increased from the previous record-setting year. So this is the most dire year of the catastrophic Great Recession, as it's called, because we don't call them depressions anymore because that's too depressing. So it was a Great Recession. I don't know about you. It was great for me. <laughs> and during 2008, we set a record. We also broke that record in 2009. Then we broke that record in 2010. We broke that record in 2011. And guess what? We broke that record in 2012. What do you know? We just found out we broke that record in 2013. We're in the midst of a great recession, to be kind. And we set a record every year for carbon emissions. We can't just slow carbon dioxide emissions by even being in the midst of an economic recession. Instead... Only collapse prevents runaway climate change. We've known this for many years. Tim Garrett's excellent paper in Climatic Change was rejected by several other journals first. And then finally, after he submitted in 2007, was published online in 2009, there was such an outcry from the civilized community that it, that it was yanked immediately. It was still there in electronic form, but it wasn't printed in paper for a couple of years later giving other climate science groups an opportunity to respond to the paper, but Garrett was not allowed to respond to their criticisms. So his paper was critiqued, but he wasn't allowed to respond. I'm not suggesting there's politics in science. I'm pointing out that it's blatant as hell. If instead of looking at our sensors, our, our, our fancy instruments by which we measure temperature, if instead we look at the plants... Let's go where Henry David Thoreau methodically, systematically collected dates of first flowering events near Walden Pond for several years when he was living there. And let's return then to the 2000s, between 2005 and 2009, I believe, and collect the same sort of data. The plants are telling us that in that area... Where, this, where the instruments tell us we've experienced a one-degree C temperature rise approximately the same as the global temperature rise. The plants are telling us it's warm 2.4 degrees there. And finally, from the Astrophysical Journal, 
Earth is, is within 1% of being uninhabitable. For the entire lifespan of the astrophysical community, astrophysicists assumed that Earth lay right in the middle of the habitable zone. That if we look at a sun, the size of our sun up there on top, they thought that Earth was right in the middle of that green band. But in fact, Earth is on the inner edge of that green band. We're at the, within 1% of being uninhabitable. Venus is not shown here. Mars is shown. Mar- Venus is approximately the same distance toward the sun from Earth as Earth is from Mars. Earth is just barely in the habitable zone. It wouldn't take much of a change in atmospheric chemistry to push Earth out of the habitable zone. And guess what? We haven't made slight changes in in Earth's atmosphere. We've made profound changes in Earth's atmosphere. Before the Industrial Revolution, we were at 280 parts per million carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now we're at 400. Before the Industrial Revolution, we were at about 700 parts per billion methane. Parts per billion, a much smaller number. But methane is about 100 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide in the first 20 years. We're now routinely around 2,000 parts per billion or more carbon di- or methane in the atmosphere. Three times three times the global average before the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We've made profound changes. The instrument record based on land sensors indicates that there's been a pause in warming since about 1998. And the the deniers point to this very, very frequently as evidence that warming has slowed, has peaked out, has topped. But in fact, that heat has been accumulating. And as of March 2013, now we're a year later, the accumulation continues. The accumulation of heat on Earth has been going into the oceans. The oceans, of course, account for most of the mass of the planet. We've been measuring temperature on land for a long time, so that was really convenient that we kept collecting those records. And it was great that that it plateaued. Starting in 1998, the temperature actually didn't change a lot, global average temperature, on land. But then we scratched a little deeper beneath the surface and found out that the Earth is still collecting a bunch of heat. It's just going a different place than we thought it was. It's going into the ocean. The oceans are warming dramatically. I want to talk about some of the self-reinforcing feedback loops that have been triggered. The first of those we found out about in the refereed journal literature in March of 2010 in science. This is the only one reported in the, in the journal literature in 2010. And it's, it's now become the best studied of these self-reinforcing feedback loops. We've triggered 30 of these now. 28 of them appear to be irreversible. I'm not going to go through all of them in much detail because you'd be scratching your eyes out. And more importantly to me, you'd be scratching my eyes out. Arctic Ocean methane hydrates. These, these ha- the hydrates or clathrates are, are lattices encaging methane molecules on the shallow seafloor in the Arctic. And as the Arctic Ocean warms, they float up to the surface, the lattice breaks down, and the methane is released into the atmosphere. 
Again, methane is about 100 times more powerful a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide molecule for molecule in the relatively short term, 20 years or less. The amount of Arctic Ocean methane hydrates is equivalent to 1,000 to 10,000 gigatons of carbon compared to 226 gigatons burned as of March 2010. We've now burned over 250 gigatons of carbon. But still, this is a pretty big number. This is 4 to 40 times the magnitude of the fossil fuels we've burned so far. So releasing those methane hydrates is sometimes called the clathrate gun. Triggering the clathrate gun is potentially catastrophic. We've been studying this one for a long time now. A minor increase in temperature is sufficient to trigger a, a tremendous methane release. According to a paper in Nature, actually the authors of the paper in Nature, a 50 gigaton burp of methane is highly possible at any time. 50 gigatons is a big deal. That's, again, about a quarter, now about a fifth of the carbon equivalent we've burned so far since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. We've observed methane plumes up to 150 kilometers across in the Arctic. What this looks like is soda, ginger ale, bubbling out of the Arctic Ocean. So if you're on a, say, hypothetically you were on a sailing ship in the Arctic Ocean, you'd be able to see the Arctic Ocean bubbling all around you as far as the eye could, heat, could see. And that's methane coming up from beneath the seafloor. You're listening to Guy McPherson on the topic of climate collapse and near-term human extinction. He spoke in Winnipeg on February 6, 2014 at the West End Cultural Center in downtown Winnipeg. His speech is the focus of this week's Global Research News Hour. Here again is Guy McPherson. Just looking at this feedback, Sam Carana predicts a global average temperature more than 4C above baseline by 2030. Remember, we've never had humans on a planet at 3.5C above baseline, and more than 10C by 2040. And according to his colleague Malcolm Wright, the Gulf Stream transport rate started a methane hydrator, clathrate gun, fired the gun, in the Arctic in 2007, when its energy per year exceeded 10 million times the amount of energy per year necessary to dissociate subsea Arctic methane hydrates. So it appears that we fired the clathrate gun about seven years ago. It's interesting, uh, among the many, many, many people who criticize my work, um, was an interview a couple of weeks ago with a couple of colleagues of mine, and one of them says, we don't really know that we've fired the clathrate gun. I would argue that we can't know until about ten years afterwards. He has no idea that it's been seven years. He thinks we just found out last week. We didn't. Seven years, ten years, I think we probably have enough evidence to say we're, we've done some serious harm. If you look at a figure from last week, this is the methane concentration right now, global distribution of methane. And you can see the accumulation in the northern hemisphere in particular. And this is one of several reasons that the northern hemisphere is going to lose habitat for humans more rapidly than the southern hemisphere will. Another reason is that there is much more land relative to the amount of water in the northern hemisphere than the southern hemisphere. I mean, the southern hemisphere has South America, a third of Africa, and Australia. The northern hemisphere has all the big land masses, Europe, Asia, and North America. So the land-to-water ratio is a big contributor to expected increases in temperature. Second feedback. 
comes along nearly a year later, again reported in Science, Atlantic water is shooting up through the Fram Strait instead of turning south off the south and east coast of Greenland, as it has typically done, instead of turning south there as part of the thermohelian conveyor belt, it's actually shooting up through the Fram Strait directly into the Arctic. So as a consequence, since 2011, Arctic temperatures have been much, much higher than historical averages because we have warm Atlantic water shooting straight up into the Arctic. It's a self-reinforcing feedback loop because as that water shoots up there, it, it melts the ice, which exposes more open water, reduces the albedo or the reflectance from the ice. Instead, we have blue open water that, that absorbs the solar radiation. And so that just goes down and down and down like, like a spiral. So one self-reinforcing feedback loop in 2010, uh, two through early 2011, Siberian methane is a classic example. Methane isn't just coming out of the Arctic Ocean, it's coming out of the land, too. Permafrost. As permafrost melts, it produces methane. The methane is leaking out of the ground as well. It's not the permafrost anymore, it's the permamelt from here on out. In 2010, you can see this stuff on YouTube. You can see scientists going out to Siberia in the summertime and finding these vents, methane vents, that are about 30 centimeters in diameter. And so they go and they light them on the fire when, when the camera is watching. And it looks like a Roman candle. You know, this big whoosh as they, as they light these methane vents on fire. Apparently just to demonstrate that, hey, Mom, I can make a fire. And look what we're doing to the, to the Earth's climate system. That's summer 2010, methane vents 30 centimeters across. Summer 2011, those methane vents are a kilometer across. Nobody's lighting that on fire. That'll take your eyebrows off. When we talk about rapid, unpredictable, and nonlinear response, that we're talking, that's what we're talking about. Nine orders of magnitude increase in size in a single year, a million times bigger from one year to the next in terms of the methane vents. Third feedback reported is drought in the Amazon. This is, this is pretty interesting because drought in the Amazon, um, the, the Amazon, that's really the lungs of the planet. That's the respiratory system. The, the, the Amazon is supposed to be sequestering a bunch of carbon, and, and instead during 2010, reported in 2011, it emitted a bunch of carbon. It became a net source of carbon instead of a sink for carbon. But dig a little deeper, we have drought-induced mortality of trees contributing to increased decomposition of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and decreased sequestration of atmospheric carbon dioxide. And that's reported as early as November 2000. So it made a big splash in 2011, and there have been subsequent review articles in Nature and Frontiers in Plant Science. But it's probably something we've known about since 2000, roughly. As the trees die or their growth rate slows, of course they're taking up less carbon than they were before, and of course they're decomposing more rapidly and kicking more carbon up into the atmosphere. Nonetheless, I'm keeping this in as, as the third of four self-reinforcing feedback loops in 2011. So we have one in 2010, reported in 2010, four reported in 2011, six reported in 2012, and I'm not going to go through all these in much depth because they're just awful. It's just one thing after another, as they say. 
So we have all kinds of events occurring to the living planet that are influencing atmospheric levels of greenhouse gases from methane to carbon dioxide and so on. And so we have six of those reported in 2012. So we have one in 2010, four in 2011, six in 2012, and wait for it, 16 in 2013. 16. We're seeing geological events play out in real time. It just keeps going and going and going. And, and, and every, every time I look around, there's another self-reinforcing feedback loop that has been triggered. 16 in 2013. Even in Antarctica, the permafrost is melting. Antarctica. It's a tremendous body of ice. And it's experiencing permafrost melt. So 16 in 2013... And one so far in 2014. So by my count, we had one in 2010, one reported in 2010, four reported in 2011, six reported in 2012, 16 reported in 2013, one reported in so far this year. So that's 28 self-reinforcing feedback loops that have been triggered on the climate front. And there's a couple that are reversible as well. Arctic drilling was fast-tracked by the Obama administration in August 2012. Fortunately, as soon as the drilling rigs got up there in 2012, they were battered by the Arctic Ocean. Sometimes nature bats last. And so it'll be at least until this year before the rigs are ready to go back up there and start drilling in places we can suddenly drill that previously were covered with ice. And finally, we have the vaunted Northwest Passage. Opened up in the summertime. The ice has turned to slush. So why not save a few bucks by shipping across that? I pointed out that Arctic methane, methane bubbling of the Arctic Ocean, was the first reported in the scientific literature and therefore the best studied. It's also the most feared of the self-reinforcing feedback loops. Because people have been writing about the clathrate gun for a long time. James Hansen wrote about it uh, deeply in his book, Storms of My Grandchildren. Malcolm Light, writing for the Arctic Methane Emergency Group on February 9th, 2012, predicted extinction by mid-century based on primarily on these half a dozen data points which appeared to indicate that methane release from the Arctic had gone exponential in 2011. NASA and NOAA subsequently revised that data set and removed all of those points from the data set. And so it looked like maybe Malcolm Light was jumping the gun by predicting extinction by mid-century. But since that time... We've had methane plumes up to 150 kilometers across reported by NASA, as I indicated earlier. Again, this is a huge amount of methane, and methane is a very powerful greenhouse gas. And so, based on the evidence that has accrued subsequently, published in places including Nature, and among the most renowned scientific journals, it looks like Malcolm Light might have been jumping the gun a little bit, but not a lot. 
And in fact, what he wrote on the 9th of February 2012 was that methane release will accelerate exponentially, release huge quantities of methane into the atmosphere and lead to the demise of all life on Earth before the middle of the century. So he's not talking about just human life. He's talking about all life on Earth. And I think that's an overstatement, by the way. I don't think we'll be able to get rid of methane-eating bacteria and extremophiles in the deep oceans by mid-century. That's clearly the goal of industrial civilization, is to kill everything. But I don't think we're going to succeed quite that rapidly. Light predicts, based on his analysis, extinction of all life in the northern hemisphere by 2031, plus or minus 13 years. And by 2047 on Earth, plus or minus a similar amount of time. Again, another example of rapid, unpredictable, and nonlinear responses that could lead to extensive ecosystem damage. We want to talk about loss of life on Earth. That's extensive ecosystem damage. Again, writing for the Arctic Methane Emergency Group, Sam Karana points out a forecast of temperature, anomal temperature anomalies, differences from average of greater than 20 C by 2050. That's late last year. All of this indicates to me that there will be little, if any, habitat for humans by mid-century and possibly much sooner because all the focus has been on one of these self-reinforcing feedback loops. They are multiplicative. They are not additive. They feed off each other. So the faster things go, the faster things go. So it would not surprise me if we see loss of habitat for humans well before mid-century on all of the planet. So what to do? Now what? Well, the political response, interestingly enough, remains the same no matter how much data I accumulate. My president harms me to say those words. If, this, if the message is somehow we're going to ignore jobs and growth simply to address climate change, I won't go for that. Greed is our only God. Capitalism is king. Any other way of living is beyond the pale. Civilization, like an airplane in flight, must, must remain aloft. Or to remain aloft must remain moving forward. I'm, I'm badly paraphrasing Edward Abbey there, who indicates that we just can't slow things down. We can't just slow the plane. You slow the plane to a critical level and it crashes. You slow civilization to a critical level, it just crashes. So there's no politician on the planet who would propose that. Jobs, they're way important. Barack Obama and his cabinet surely knew at the Copenhagen meetings what was reported at the Copenhagen meetings and was actually reported in advance. The long-term sea level that corresponds to current carbon dioxide concentrations right now, and, and then in 2009, was about 385 parts per million. The long-term sea level corresponding to that level of carbon dioxide concentration is about 23 meters above today's level, and temperatures will be 6 degrees C or more higher based on real long-term climate records, not models. So if we look in the deep past and correlate carbon dioxide concentrations with temperature and sea level rise, we see the lag that we're experiencing now. So there's a lag. Carbon dioxide rises, 
then temperature rises profoundly. And we aren't slowing things down. Not so far, anyway. Speaking of lag, there's a 40-year lag, a 40-year lag between causes and consequences when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. From the, t- the, the carbon dioxide we emit today in our coal-fired power plants and our oil-powered automobiles will produce temperature changes in the atmosphere 40 years from now. So when I was 14 and just learning how to drive, that's the consequences we're seeing today. 0.85C above baseline, 40 years later. For me, this means a couple of things. One, it's horrible. The horror is amazing. We're locked into consequences resulting from the last 40 years. During the last 29 years, we burn more carbon as a result of fossil fuels than in the previous 300 years combined. So we're only getting started in terms of temperature rise and loss of habitat for humans. That's the horrible part. The sort of good news is that I don't really feel guilty about driving a car when I was 14. I don't know about you, but I thought it was about the coolest thing ever. And, of course, I had no clue. At the time, very few people had any idea what the consequences would be in terms of temperature. So I'm suggesting to you a guilt-free experience. This is your get-out-of-guilt-free card. What we did 40 years ago is impacting the planet today. Nobody knew. Nobody told me. I don't know about you. I didn't have that kind of parenting or influence. So what about the individual response? The political response will remain the same. We're going to keep this sucker going until it kills everybody. We drive to extinction some 200 species a day. I don't see anybody suggesting we stop that. So it's pedal to the metal till we, till we hit the wall. That's the political response. That's the social response. The individual response to this information, well, here I quote that classic longtime moral philosopher, the boss, in the end, which you don't surrender, well, the world just strips away. Maybe we should let go. Or, from Zen, let go or be dragged. From popular culture, carpe diem, seize the day. When I speak on college campuses, Students sometimes point out that I've, I've got the pronunciation wrong. It's crappy diem, as in you just ruined my day. Whatever. Or to quote Nietzsche, live as though the day were here. And one more from the Jewish poet in the Warsaw ghetto, Leon Staff. Even more than bread, we now need poetry in a time when it seems that it is not needed at all. So from an individual perspective, I don't think you can hold yourself responsible for the temperature changes we're seeing today that were produced by our actions 40 years ago. Some people in this audience were not even alive 40 years ago. But you'll be suffering the consequences, and we all will. But I don't think we need to to carry that burden with us. I think instead we need to write poetry and read poetry. I'm like a Hollywood movie. Well, I'm not nearly as good-looking as a Hollywood movie. Maybe I shouldn't even use that line. seems a little filled with hubris, maybe. 
I'm like a Hollywood movie. In that, I have a happy ending. How's that? It's the most awesome ending of all. DNA ensures our unique status. It's, if I believed in miracles, I think every one of us were one. We have, an, we have enough understanding of DNA to know that the odds against any one of us being here exceed the odds against plucking a single atom from the entire universe. There's that analogy again. There's 10 to the 80th, or 10, somewhere between 10 to the 80th and 10 to the 100th atoms in the entire universe. The odds against this, con- this collection of DNA being in this physical form far exceeds that probability. And yet, here we are. We're amazing. We get to die. And that makes us the lucky ones because we get to live. That doesn't happen to almost any collection of DNA. But it happened to us. Seize the day. In the words of evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins, in the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I that are privileged to be here, privileged with eyes to see where we are and brains to wonder why. We're truly incredible. Let's ponder that. Let's, let's appreciate that. Let's appreciate each other in the amazing miracle that we are. A while ago, there was a program, uh, Pandora's Promise, on CNN. And Hansen and some others said the only conceivable way out of our mess is through a shift, a massive shift to nuclear energy. Have you any comment on that? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last part of your question. That the only way out of the mess we're in is a massive shift to nuclear energy. Oh, right, right. So a massive shift to nuclear energy, which James Hansen has been promoting for a long time. Um, Right after that program came out, there's great research study published in the journal literature indicating that nuclear power plants don't save carbon, they produce carbon. I've known for 20 years that they were not carbon neutral for about 20 years because they require so much concrete for the cooling towers. And concrete, producing concrete is enormously expensive in terms of carbon dioxide emissions. But it, it turns out that building a nuclear power plant and taking it through its life cycle actually is a tremendous producer of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Hansen's wrong. Furthermore, I don't think you have to look very far past Fukushima to figure out that maybe nuclear isn't the right strategy. You know, we're, we're in, an, in an era of economic contraction right now. And it used to be we could handle things like nuclear power plants getting a little sketchy. And now we can't handle nuclear power plants getting a little sketchy anymore. And so Fort Calhoun along the Missouri River in Nebraska... Um, I can't even remember the name of the one that that showed up in the news yesterday, another nuclear power plant that caught fire um, in New Mexico um, or nuclear processing material. I'm not even sure what it was. So we have all these events going on involving nuclear. You know, know, that stuff's detrimental to human health for a few million years. Humans have yet to create a structure, a single structure that lasts 50,000 years. What hubris to think that we can build nuclear power plants to to feed our addiction to electricity forever with no consequences. That seems a little silly to me.
all the way in the back there. If you can wait just a second until the microphone gets to you, that would be great. Somebody's recording this for posterity. Hi. Um, so I was just wondering, um, with the advent of renewable resources, how would you change the mindset of a contemporary civilization to kind of switch over and kind of go to a clean energy movement? Is that a possibility? Can we get to that point to reverse some of the runaway climate change? I'm not sure. Had, had we started down the the, quote, renewable energy path 40 or 50 years ago, uh, we might have made some progress in that direction, but it's far too late now. And, and I put renewable in quotes because renewable energy sources are really derivatives. They're derivatives of fossil fuels. It takes a lot of oil to make a solar panel. It takes a lot of coal and oil to make a wind turbine. So these are derivatives of fossil fuels. In addition, maintaining the electrical grid requires liquid fuels, right? Every time it snows, the wind blows, or we have some event, the lines go down. Somebody has to go out there and strain the lines back up again. So these are derivatives of fossil fuels. I've written about this at Nature Bats Last and other places. The vaunted third industrial revolution, as it's sometimes called, is not going to happen because it's too late. We're, we're in the realm right now of very expensive oil, and it takes a lot of oil and a lot of coal to make solar panels and wind turbines and wave turbines and all those other things. We're out of rivers to dam, and there's 7.1 billion people who want everything we have. The race is on. We all lose. And I would argue that we really don't need grid-tied electricity anyway. And, you know, we think we're addicted that we need to have lights come on every time we flip a switch. But really? I mean, we lived two million years as human beings and didn't have electricity. It was in the, in the 1960s before the rural south in the United States had grid-tied electricity. 1960s. You know, that's within the lifetime of a significant proportion of the audience here. And nobody died. Nobody died because they didn't have grid-tied electricity. Now we have 7 billion people on an overshot, overpopulated planet. And so it's problematic every time the power goes out. Hi. <clears throat> Thanks for your presentation. Um, one of the things I'm really curious about is what is the 1% doing? These are the smartest people in the room, and they have the wealth of half a planet to play with and to realize pretty much anything they want to fantasize. So do they have an island someplace? Do they have a spaceship they're building to go to Mars? Mm -hmm. What are they doing? Or are they really so lost in their delusion that money will save them somehow, that they're just going to keep on keeping on. I think it's all of the above. I think there's a lot of delusion out there. There's probably quite a bit in here. Oh, social filter again. <laughs> um, 
I, I've been in contact with people who are among the 1%. And a couple of examples come to mind. One of them says, it's too late. Al Gore had access to an audience, and he had access to an unlimited amount of money, and he didn't move the needle one bit. So why should I do anything? The guy won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he didn't move the needle at all. And then another person who is exceptionally wealthy contacted me and said, I, I want to come visit the mud hut. That's what I call my homestead, the mud hut. And I, because I, I, I'm looking for examples, I want to emulate that when I move to s the southern hemisphere. You, you know, James Cameron just bought a whole bunch of New Zealand. He's a pretty wealthy guy. Some people are making plans, I've no doubt, to extend their lives as long as they can. But, I, I mean, there's a couple of things going on. One, you don't know that you triggered a self-reinforcing feedback loop until after it's in the rearview mirror. Right? So we didn't know about any self-reinforcing feedback loops, according to the referee journal literature, until March 2010. So we didn't know we triggered this. So when Tim Garrett wrote his paper for climatic change, published in November 2009, when he said only collapse prevents runaway climate change, he, he didn't know at that point that we triggered self-reinforcing feedback loops. Also, there's this 40-year lag. That's problematic, to say the least. So, you know, not being in constant contact with the 1% or being one of them, I can't really tell you what they're thinking about. But I bet a lot of them are thinking about the, the lines of that cartoon. That there's there's still a lot of money to be made. That's what drives a lot of those people. On this week's Global Research News Hour, we heard a speech by Dr. Guy McPherson. He spoke in Winnipeg, February 6, 2014, on the topic of climate collapse and the near-term extinction of the human species. More of McPherson's ideas and analyses can be found on his blog, Nature Bats Last which can be found at GuyMcPherson.com. The Global Research News Hour airs Fridays at 1 p.m. on CKW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are also podcast at GlobalResearch.ca. If you have any feedback to share, let us have it. GlobalResearchNewsHour at gmail.com. I've been your host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you for joining us.